Now, gracious Jesus, we thank you for the rain that came today. We remember, Lord, not so long ago when it was so dry. We remember, Lord, that we thought maybe you'd forgotten us and that the rain would never come, but it did, just like your goodness always does, right on time. We rejoice in it, Lord, because we know what it means to be without it. Now, the same thing applies spiritually, Lord. We know what it means to not be able to gather and to not hear from you. I pray, Father, that tonight you refresh our hearts. Let this be far more, Lord, than just information. Let it be something that changes us. Would you do that work within us now, Lord Jesus? Bless this time we'll share together and thank you, Lord, for loving us and compelling us to one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will again entertain the passage that we employed this morning. It is in Revelation 17, starting in verse 6, the second half. When I saw her, the apostle said, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of the Lamb of Life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. The, these are of one mind. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. They make war, make war on the lamb and will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes, nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I see this particular passage, it is easy uh, to be a little bit overwhelmed. I won't ask you to raise your hand if that's you, but I will say for me, in the time that year that I spent, 2002 and three, that I spent in uh, a year's study on Revelation in one of my PhD seminars, we got to this part of what we would regard as the third vision, and it seemed that the lens got a little fuzzy. 
Have you ever taken a picture with a fuzzy lens? Things that should be crisp, things that might otherwise normally be crisp, they're just not quite as sharp as we would like them to be. Here is a prime example of that. At this, the critical moment when we most need and want to see what there is to see, we are that much further removed from it because John can't tell us exactly what he saw. I want you to see this word that's used in verse 6 and again in verse 7. It's the same word, marveled. Some have translated it astonished. The idea behind the word is I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. Have you ever told a story and it was so fantastic you, you started it by saying, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. Now you didn't really mean you're not going to believe it. You meant what you're about to say is amazing, incredible. John at this point simply is beyond that. Words fail him. It is as if he hardly knows what to do with himself. And that's why the angel shakes him. In my notes on this section, I've drawn a line from here to another passage that is similar to it. Acts chapter 12. There is where our friend Peter is in prison. And he's sleeping. And the people of God are praying. Praying for his release. The angel comes to release him and Peter in his Sleepy stupor, hardly knows what to do with himself. The Bible says the angel led him out of the prison into the street, and then the angel disappeared. And this is the way it says, when Peter came to himself, ha, when Peter came to himself, he understood and moved from there. I think that's what the angel is calling for in verse 7. John, come back to yourself. What you are seeing is not so shocking and then he moves to verse 10. That's the first question we'll tackle tonight. Who are the kingdoms represented in Revelation 17.10? It's a key question. And the reason that I bring it up is not because we have anything clear that we can say about it, conclusively clear, but it's rather because the, this question is one that gets twisted and abused, and there are many who suggest that it's this person or that person always with an agenda to lead you to a desired end from the beginning of it. I want to take you down some of these arguments and then arrive maybe somewhere at the end of this question, and then as we did last week, when we get to the end of this question, we'll give you a chance to ask questions and then we'll go to the next one who are the kingdoms represented in revelation 17 10 the five who are past this is one view egypt assyria babylon persia and greece now if you're one who knows your history i won't ask you how long it's been since you took world civilizations or civilized history or uh, uh, western civilization but maybe it's been a week or two. This is the order in which they would have ruled. Starting with Egypt, and then Sennacherib in the days of Hezekiah, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Persia, those from the east, and finally, Alexander, Alexander the Great, and his rule. The one who is present, as it's described there in verse 20, uh, verse 10, is Rome. The future one belongs to the beast. 
Now, when you see this, it's easy to go, yeah, yeah, I can get on board with that. That seems reasonable. This is option one, all right? Let me just take you to another option. This one just as, as significant and well-grounded. Another option is there are five Roman rulers, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. The one who is, is the one who is currently Vespasian. The one who will be is Titus. Let's talk about why this seems unlikely. Augustus is not actually the first of the Caesars. Julius is. So we already have a problem. Likewise, go to the one who is Vespasian. If we believe that John wrote this in about 95 AD, Vespasian is past, not present. Perhaps it's out of sequence in time, and so Vespasian could still be that. Even if he is, the one who will be has already ruled by the time John writes this. So it's perhaps not that either. I skipped over the section on the previous. These countries, we might include in them the ancillaries that came alongside. So why does it have to be these five and the two that are at the end? The, one, the only one we can agree on completely is this one at the tail. The last kingdom is the beast. I, I present this to you because this is not conclusive either. So we have two that are, hmm, maybe. Let's move on and get to a mediating position. Perhaps something in between these. Or perhaps a third one altogether. Perhaps the best option is to regard these kings as symbolic. They aren't necessarily to be directly linked with specific rulers, but are to be regarded as standing for the Roman Empire as a whole. Go with me on this. Perhaps the number seven, how many rulers there are, represents the fullness and completion of the world system of government and thus the end of the created order. I, I bring you to that because one of the things that occurs to me when you, when you are reading through books about Revelation, one of the things you'll see is there are some parts where it gets fatter, some parts where we don't have a lot of conclusive evidence, and so lots of people rush in with suggestions, and they come alongside, and hey, how about this, how about this, how about this? It's almost like going to a restaurant with somebody that's been there many times. They'll recommend to you a hundred different dishes, and by the time they're done, you're not even hungry anymore, right? I want to give you this one because I want you to recognize this is apocalyptic literature. We've said that how many times in the course of this study? A million? Perhaps it's not intended to be linked to a specific king that we can acknowledge on earth. Maybe that first king is neither Egypt nor Augustus nor Julius Caesar. Perhaps it is a spiritual king, one that we've never seen on this earth but has used these other forces to accomplish his purposes. The reason I say that is because I want us to unshackle ourselves from the notion that we can strip down Revelation to its barest parts, break it apart, and then reassemble it in a way that we understand. It's just not possible. Like the part we talked about this morning, we have a box that has no key. But not to worry, because Jesus does. And he's the only one who needs the key. 
So given that the beast is the eighth king, ruling at the same time as the seventh, perhaps it doesn't matter in the first place. Reason that I, I end that section with this is because I want us to recognize even if we know all that we want to know, will it really help us? I can't remember who I was talking to about this. Maybe it was someone in this room and maybe it was someone uh, that I have communicated with via email or text message over the last couple of weeks. And they asked me a, a very honest and, and sincere question. Why didn't the Lord make it more clear in Revelation? Why didn't he explain? Uh, make things more explicit for us. Well, I don't know, and I won't pretend to speak for the Lord, but I will suggest something on his behalf. If you knew that, let's just take a ruler from the past, Titus, who was a very cruel ruler in his day, if you knew that Titus was equivalent to the beast, and that in his time period, that's when the world would end. If you knew that Titus was the last one, and if you knew that you weren't living in Titus's era, you were living well before it, and that there was no Titus on the horizon, and you didn't have to wonder or worry about that. If you knew all of that, and you knew that it was so far ahead in the future that you would never live to see that, then you wouldn't worry about preparing, perhaps, for the Lord's return. You might just stand back and say, Lucky to me to be born so well. Lucky me to be born so early. And even better, so beautiful, right? Um, I, ca I caution you against this. I think part of the reason that Revelation is written in apocalyptic language and is written in such a way that we don't know all of the pieces we'd like to know is to encourage us to rely upon him to give us leadership not our own. All right, I see my friend Katie, and I see my friend Katie has a microphone right in front of her there. We're ready for your first question, if you have it, about who are the kingdoms represented in Revelation 17.10. All right, go ahead, Gary. It said one hour. Yes. Okay, can you define whether that is literal or not? So uh, I'm gonna, that's our fifth question tonight. I wanted to make sure I'd covered it. That's our fifth question tonight, so let me come back to you. How about that? All right. Anybody else? All right, then. Let's move on. This question is one that uh, perhaps might seem a bit esoteric, but it is one that I wanted us to cover simply because of the congruity of the Bible as a whole. Have we seen the great prostitute of Revelation 17 before? Is she someone who links up well with others in history? The answer is yes, or at least perhaps so. If you look through the Old Testament, you'll find one who shares many commonalities with the great prostitute. Her name is Jezebel. She's the wife of King Ahab in 2 Kings 9 and is similar to the great prostitute. They're leaders of a secular state. Forgive the typo I just see now. And they are powerful in their time. They exhibit extreme wickedness and a desire to punish God's people. They exhibit immorality on an advanced scale and a willingness to use and abuse any and everyone. 
Finally, they both find themselves destroyed through God's judgment. Have we seen the great prostitute before? Yes. As sad as that might be, yes. You see, the reality is that the same spirit of evil, of wickedness, of immorality, that controls the great prostitute is the same one who lives throughout history. And uh, it's the same one who indwelt our, 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 our friend Jezebel. You see, the idea is I have so much power that I'm untouchable. You can't come against me because I'm so powerful. In fact, Jezebel goes so far as to mock her own husband as to his weakness. Why don't you do something about this person who has wronged you? Jezebel. She is a foreshadowing, in my estimation, of the great prostitute. She's not the only one, but I have to believe that because of what we see in her, we know something about what the great prostitute will look at and how we will recognize her. Questions about the great prostitute of Revelation 17 or perhaps even Jezebel. So I'll tell you, one of the things that I love most about our yearly walk through the Bible is the idea, the notion that um, we get to walk through all of these stories on an annual basis. Now, maybe you aren't one who's on our reading plan. You know what? Today's a great day to start. You can find it in the, the chapel of the Welcome Center. I don't think we have any more over here in the, the chapel foyer, uh, but you can find it down at the Fifth Center on the far side of the building, down by our fellowship hall. These Bible reading plans are designed to help you make sense of the Bible. So the take-it-home portion that I did this morning where I said, allow the Bible to interpret itself, that's where this question arose from. Understanding that where we've been is, in some ways, what we will see again, especially with regard to Satan and his attacks on God's people, helps us know how to approach and understand the attacks that Satan will commit to in the future. All right, let's move along. Yes, I... Yeah, I see you back there, Jen. Hold on, Katie's going to come to you so I can make sure I hear you. She's wearing her boots, so she'll get there quick. Okay, this is about Jezebel. Yeah. Okay, she comes from the Sidonians, and like... Lot and Esau occupied the lands around the promised land. Yeah. Does the Sidonian come from someone that twisted off of Israel? So, yes, there are people who have been historically the enemies of God's people. So that, does that necessarily mean that somebody uh, inside of Israel can't be that? Well, this is where we're confronted with the, the problem, if you want to call it that, of geopolitical states as they are, exist now. Does geopolitical Israel include the Golan Heights? No, it does not. And yet, when we see historically Israel in the Old Testament, the answer is yes. So we, we, we struggle with making some of those connections. 
Your question is a wonderful one, though, and I love the thinking you're doing, Jen. Is it somebody that is outside of Israel coming to attack them? Perhaps. Almost certainly, yes. Uh, but where is Israel? When you travel through the nation of Israel, one of the things that you'll find is a great big honking wall. It divides the West Bank and Gaza Strip from the rest of Israel. Do those places that are on the west side of the Jordan and south of the Sea of Galilee belong to Israel or not? So is it possible that the opportunity God has given for them in their attacks will be uh, somebody in one of those regions? In other words, inside geopolitical Israel, but not a part of the people of God of Israel. See me later. Let me answer that question at a later time. All right, anybody else? I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss you. Yes. So uh, the the land that was promised to Abraham was a lot bigger than what they have now. So Bill's question was, wasn't it a lot bigger piece of land? Yes. So what will the Lord do with that? I don't know. I know this, the Golan Heights, that section of, of the hills uh, north of the Sea of Galilee and running down just a piece on the, uh, the, the east side, it's been fought over so many times that neither Israel, Lebanon, nor Syria or Jordan own sovereignty over that property. It is administrated, and please hold your applause for this, by the United Nations. <laughs> See, that's exactly what I expected from you. A groan, because that's how most people feel about it. But the, the idea is to keep it out of everybody's hands so they don't fight over it. That was the notion behind it. Now, has that worked? For the most part, for 50 years, yes. We have not had the kind of war that we did in 1967. Uh, we, we've not had that kind of moment since then. Uh, at least not on the same scale. But will it, will it stay that way forever? Well, you know better. Uh, there will be a time when that peace will end and there will be that fight again. Anybody else? Yeah, Jason, I see you. It's hard for me to see with the lights and you guys are in the dark tonight. No, thank you. So um, it says later on that the, that the beast hated the prostitute. Yes. And I think you made reference to uh, the prostitute representing some sort of apostate or whatever, and the beast being kingdoms or rulers. Should we be looking for the beast to be more of a political and prostitute to be more religious? I, I think it's a, a, a both and question, Jason, but it's a good one. From what we know, the beast, he will have elements of both. And perhaps the prostitute represents the religious side of it. We know that there will be an imperial cult worshiping the beast. We know that the imperial cult will be commanded of those that are in the, the, in the world at that time. And though there will be many who will reject it. What will we do with them? What will the beast do with them? I, I don't know. Scripture doesn't say much more than, than that about it. As far as the prostitute, at what point is she connected and why does she get thrown overboard? I will say that for some in, uh, in history, they have regarded 
one particular church, the Roman Catholic Church, as the great prostitute, and that she will be in league with the beast, if not the beast himself, and that they will be overthrown together. In other words, the Catholic Church must fall in order for the, uh, the, the end to come. I don't know about that. I've known many, many saved Catholics. To league all of them together, I think, is unfair. So uh, I don't think that's what the Word of God portrays. That said, uh, when I see the beast and the prostitute, especially in chapter 17, it seems as if they're two expressions of the same person. So it's not two identities, it's one. And then one is cast overboard for just such a time. Did I hear somebody else or see somebody else raising their hand? Shield my eyes for a moment. Bring my ball cap next week. That'll make it easier for me. All right, then. Let's move along. Revelation 17, 11. Of all the verses that we have in Revelation 17, this is the one that is the most curious. And that's why it's not a question. It's just a statement. This is one that is translated in a lot of different ways. And generally speaking, the, the Romance languages in English translate it one way, but it translates very differently into some of our other languages around the world. And the reason is there's not really a parallel. There's not really a way to express this in a way that makes sense. Here's what I mean. Revelation 17:11 speaks to the unique nature of the beast. He was, is not, and is again. This is, as I pointed this morning, a counterfeit of the eternal being. He intends to replicate what we see in Revelation 4 and 5, where God is, was, is, and is to come. Now, it's not just in Revelation 4 and 5 we see this. You'll find it in Isaiah 6. You'll find it throughout Scripture. Anytime we see into the throne room of heaven... We see this. And if you go back to Exodus 3, verse 14, when God says, I am that I am, then this is resonating there too because it's two present tense verbs connected. That doesn't work in English. You can't do that because the, the insistence of that is from eternity past, I always was, I am right now, as I've always been, and for eternity forward, I always will be exactly as I am now. That's hard to convey in any language. So when the beast attempts to replicate that, it falls. See this last bullet on this first, first page. For the beast, such a description isn't accurate. He has a future eternity, that much is clear. But he's not eternal in nature in the same way as God is and cannot claim eternality behind him. Just make yourself a note here that Satan is a created being. He is a created being. Like the angels of which he belongs, he is a created being. I want, to go, want you to go with me back 2,000 years, and let's revisit a myth that carries a lot of weight even now. But in the first century, it was an overwhelmingly popular myth, one that really was... Uh, 
almost took a life all its own. Like some of the stories that we've heard over and over again, the tall tales, we might call them here in Texas, this is a legend, and it is exactly that. When Revelation was written, there was a popular legend known as Nero Recividus, or Nero Raised. It suggested the beast was the second coming of Nero. He was, in other words, he was alive. He died. They knew that and held a big funeral for him. And Nero was raised, and thus the beast appears. I, I want to I call that out to you because in the first century, this Nero-raised myth fooled many. Even into the second and third centuries, there were many who said, well, what we're waiting for is Nero to be raised, and then when we see Nero raised back, then we'll know that Jesus isn't far away. I, I, I don't doubt that the Lord can do whatever he chooses to do in whatever way he chooses to do it. That's not a problem for him. He doesn't need my permission to accomplish his will. That said, I don't think he needs to bring Nero back from the dead in order to accomplish his purposes. I think we can safely put that in the category of urban legend. It is one that we should set aside so that we are not fooled. Through this and other legends, you'll notice how I said that, the beast intends to fool many. The, beast, the easiest and best way to do it is to reflect as much commonality with God as possible. That's where the problem comes in. When you put things really close together, it's easy to mistake one for another. Case in point, one of the things that we see over and over again in our marketplace is, especially if you're one who shops on Amazon or something like that, an online retailer, you'll find some things that are very expensive if you buy them in the States, but in other stores, and Amazon, some stores will have it for very cheap. One of two things is true if they're very cheap and they should be very expensive. One, they're either stolen, and we know that, or they've been duplicated with a lower standard of production. What stands out in my mind is a recent article that I read in one of my golf magazines about uh, golf clubs being made in China, shipped over here with a name brand on them, one of the name brands that you would find at golf headquarters, say. Uh, that's not an advertisement for them, you understand, but that's where I like to shop. A name that we would recognize there, and, and yet to go, hmm, how can it be so cheap? Well, it's because it's trying to lay something that is false up against something that's true. I want to caution you, friends. Don't be fooled. Don't be trapped into thinking the wrong thing. We know that even if the beast is indeed alive, again, he is not eternal. The beast will be concluded, and the next time it will be permanently. Oh, friends, this is good news, and it causes us to say, thank you, Lord, for the beast has a timetable and a short one at that. All right, there's not really a question, but I wonder if somebody has something they want to ask about what we've talked about. The, the, the difficulty of, of taking this, this element up is it's really hard to uh, explain in such a way 
that makes sense. But I, I'll say this. If you're one who has any interest in studying Greek, Revelation 17.11 is a good example of why you should. You might say, well, Darren, I'm not that smart. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that for a second, okay? I'll bet you you're smarter than you think you are. If I can learn it, anybody can. So understand that, that, that it's not too late. I never will forget in one of my classes, one of the ladies that was in there with us, she was old enough to be my mother. And uh, she was in a first-year Greek class. She said, when we were going around introducing ourselves and why we were in there, she said, you know what, I've always wanted to take Greek. I was talking to my husband about it, and she said, I'm 54 years old, I can't start now. And he looked back at her and said, how old will you be if you don't start? After he got up off the floor, she came and registered for the class. <laughs> so you get the point we're trying to make. Okay, questions about Revelation 17 11. Yes, sir, Danny. I was hoping you'd ask about this. <laughs> I bet you were. <laughs> um, is this the same beast from Revelation 13 3 that has the mortal head wound and then comes back to life? Yes. Okay. It seems like a parallel, though. Yes, it, it absolutely is. And where is the overlap between that vision and this one? We don't know. Uh, in other words, are these contemporaneous visions? Are they lay on top of each other? The, the, the visions seem so similar. It seems probable, but Scripture never makes that connection for us. I wanted to ask you, Danny, when you're interpreting this for your deaf people, how would you take this? Because this would be, in my mind, challenging to communicate to those who, who might be needing to hear that. In other words, time, tense, and space. What would you do with this? See, I'm turning the tables on Danny. I'm going to uh, let him be stumped the chump. I would let my wife interpret that. <laughs> There's brilliance right there. Oh, it, it's, it's very, very difficult to interpret this, this whole, uh, you know, the series that you've been doing on Revelation is very, very difficult. I'm sure. And I'm sorry for that. The good news is we're nearly done. So just a few weeks left, really. All right, anyone else on, on 1711? Yeah? There we go, Miss Vita. Is the beast also Satan or the devil? Yes, in some respects, the dragon, the beast, the prostitute, the false prophet, they all belong in the same family. And so it's hard to say one is necessarily the other, but yeah, they all belong together. Is that specific beast Satan himself? Uh, maybe. So, yes, he is, he is Satan, uh, Satan's emissary sent to torment the people of God. Yes, sir, Gary. Hold on, Satan. Katie, come, come and uh, help my friend out. Back to the replication. Yeah. And anyone's mechanical kind of understands that, but you stated the replicated version would fall. We know God knows who the replicated version is and the real version. So, the replicated version, if it fell, 
we know would not come back because it really wasn't real. Yeah. The real one then is still left. And we know God knows who that is. Yes, mercifully. I hope so. <laughs> what, we, we, what we know, Gary, for sure, is that Revelation 18, 19, and 20 are still coming. 18, 19, and 20, the beast is thrown into the bottomless pit. Satan is incarcerated into the lake of fire, and the door is locked for all eternity. It's, yes, it's the end of the story. Uh, no, that's a good question. I appreciate you asking it. The, the, the challenge we have is we want to rush ahead and get to the victory in chapter 19. Don't blame you. The marriage supper of the Lamb, I'll be honest with you, I've been looking forward to this talk for about, let's see, how long have we done this study? I think that will be our 40th talk uh, in, in that series. Um, I've been looking forward to it for about 39 talks. Uh, and yet, if we're going to understand the very pinnacle of our victory, we have to understand the depth of the judgment that is coming. So it would be wrong for us to rush ahead to the pinnacle of our victory and leave behind all of those who don't know it. And that's a key part of Revelation. Anybody else on 1711? Let us jump ahead to 1718, shall we? The woman and the great city of Revelation 1718, are they the same? The prostitute and the city. The short answer is yes. Consider that this isn't a great city. It's the great city, as if there is no other. It's the very emblem of all that is wrong and sinful in the world. It's a microcosm of every evil system, and the city opposed to God anywhere in the world. So I'm not sure that verse 18, with the great city listed there and the woman who is in there, I'm not sure that uh, it means any specific geographical place. Now, when I've read interpretations of this, I've seen more than a few suggestions about who it will be. Rome is an Excuse me, an obvious easy one. But then as you move forward in history, it shifts. Berlin, Brussels for the EU, London, New York, San Francisco, Las Vegas, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo. You get the idea. It depends on where you're interpreting it as to where you assign the great city. Perhaps we would do well to not assign it to a geographical location and say this is an emblem a symbol reflecting all of the great cities that are sinful and wicked, turning their back on God and rejecting his authority. Let's be clear, the second point I have on this, her kingdom holds sway over all others and she uses force to accomplish her desires. This isn't limited to just one city or just one woman, rather it's reflective of all of them represented by this one. So the great prostitute, and the great city, while they are indeed specific individuals and specific places, it isn't necessarily limited to any just one individual. This is a broad brush that our friend uh, is painting with. Ironically, it is the death of the lamb that brings him victory. 
You see, as the lamb and the martyrs are slaughtered, the beast thought that he'd won. But the reality is, they brought victory through their loss. Satan wanted to bring destruction and chaos. Yes, the death of this woman, the death of this city, that'll bring peace for God and his people. It was always God's plan. It was always God's purpose to bring peace back to his people and to settle it. It was never his intention to leave it the way it is. So that begs the question, well, if that's his plan, if that's his desire, then why is he taking so long to deliver it? That is a question that I cannot answer, nor will I pretend to. I will simply say that in God's good grace and in God's good time, he will bring this to pass. And that Revelation 17 is necessarily and logically followed by 19. In other words, the defeat that looks like it's bringing in chapter 17 and 18 are overwhelmed when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords rides over the hill. When he comes, you won't have to ask who is it. Questions about Revelation 17, 18. Yeah, Your, Bill's question is, could this city be Jerusalem? I, I think the only other really logical city that it could be, if it isn't Rome, is Jerusalem. Be reminded of, uh, well, if you're reading through our Bible reading plan, and I hope you are, I hope you are, uh, today's reading was Jeremiah 26 and 7, right? Yes, I'll, I'll answer that for you. Yes, today was 26, 27, 28. One of the things that you read there, or maybe that was yesterday, uh, yeah, so this weekend for sure. One of the things you see there is God bringing judgment on the city of Jerusalem for their failure and their unwillingness to be obedient to him and his cause. Nebuchadnezzar already is standing at the gates. And it's into that moment, into that very moment of judgment, that, Revela that Jeremiah 29, 11 comes. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Well, God, hang on a minute. If you're going to give me a hope and a future, send Nebuchadnezzar away. But God had to bring judgment into that moment. So could it be Jerusalem? You bet. Someone else. All right, then, let's move on to Gary's question. We'll finish with that. Why do the kings of Revelation 17, 12 only rule for one hour? Well, let's be clear. Because this is apocalyptic literature, we cannot be clear that this is a chronological statement. When I see my watch click over, uh, to 6 o'clock, I will know that it has been 60 minutes since we started our conversation in here. It would have been 60 minutes ago that Shumi was leading us in, in music. But God, in his eternal scope, is not limited to the clock on my wrist or to the one that is linked to the, 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 the solar calendar that we use. 
Rather, for him, it may be a 60-minute period that is epical in nature. Go with me on this and expand your thinking with me for a moment. The reign of the kings may be longer than an hour on the clock, but in the eyes of eternity, it'll be reflected as if it is only an hour. In other words, a brief period. In some cases, when we translate the word hora, which we translate usually hour, it can be a time allotted by God. In other words, instead of just translating it strictly one hour, it could be they were given a time allotted by God. Furthermore, their authority and power are strictly borrowed. They loan their influence to the beast. They take it back to strike down the prostitute, only to find themselves defeated once and for all against the lamb. So is the comment of 60 minutes an hour's rule in Revelation 17, 12 to be considered chronologically? Probably not. Maybe, but it doesn't seem likely so. It seems more likely that it is an hour a, that we would regard it as a moment in time allotted by God. You said chapter verse this morning. Yeah. Taking it as the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yes. Yes, so FDR's comment about the hour is upon us, and likewise for Winston Churchill, the hour is upon us. He wasn't meaning a 60-minute time period. He was meaning a moment in time when uh, we have to stand our ground. Right, so I don't think it's any more clear here than it was there. So is this a necessarily 60-minute hour? Probably not. Someone else? Yeah, I see you back there. Hold on just a second. Katie's coming. Jesus said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. He wasn't talking about 60 minutes. No. And I was just going to comment on Jezebel. Yes. She, she became dog food. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. So, and her bones became the dust that people used for, to sprinkle in places when she was buried. Someone else? Friends, it is a joy to have these conversations with you. We will take a one-week hiatus from this uh, next week, we're going to be blessed by sharing our, our conference time at 5, uh, and then we will go straight from that into the BK Bridge concert. Let me just tell you, friends, if you liked Veritas, you're going to really like BK Bridge. Uh, I think you'll be blessed by them. Would you invite someone to come with you next Sunday morning and Sunday night? Sunday morning, we'll have BK Bridge here for, for the worship time. And then our friend, Dr. Todd Still, who needs no introduction, he will be with us to preach that morning. Uh, he wanted to come and talk with us this fall, and that was just the, the Sunday that fit best into our schedule. So we're going to welcome Todd, and I know you'll love on him as you always do. We're grateful for that. So let us conclude 
with a moment of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Gracious Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you've shown. And thank you, Father, that we can say conclusively, you are good. You are loving. That your justice shall be accomplished and that in your good time, you will bring it to pass. I pray today, Father, that you would send us to those who need to know that. Don't let us just hold on to our good fortune, that at least we miss out on all that. Let us instead embrace the idea that you, Lord Jesus, you are doing something for us, in us, and yes, Lord, even through us. So send us out to those who need the same hope we have found. Give us voice and clarity to bring them the good news. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.